0: everybody. Welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. I'm your host, Spencer Martin from the Beyond the Peloton newsletter with my usual co-host, Andrew Vontz, a little busy due to his his newly launched company, The Better Lab. Check it out at thebetterlab.io. I am trying to fill in bonus episodes to make sure you guys get at least a semi-weekly shows and and eliminate some of those longer gaps in between the, the main shows with both Andrew and I. And this week we have Aisha Protlier from the Jamaican National Track and Field Team. Team boss, running team, is that correct? That's correct. Olympian Commonwealth Games champion, winner, 3,000 meter steeplechase. What year was that? 2018. 20... 2018. I feel like it was yesterday. Me too. And Olympic hopeful for twenty twenty-four and most importantly, massive cycling fan, potentially a bigger cycling fan than I am. You you may be you're on the boards, then that's and that's and that's why we're here. You're on the message boards on Twitter, on Reddit all the time. I try to block it out, but we brought you in, you got some hot takes. You called the Red Bull, I guess, rumors of Wout Van Aert, Rimco, Tom Pickcock all coming home to Red Bull weeks before the media got a hold of it. So it's great to have you. I first just wanted to talk about, Andrew and I are always kind of blubber blabbering about like, oh, these guys, elite athletes, this is how they train, this is how they live. But we don't, you would not say have like the most firsthand experience of that. So would love to hear just a little bit about like your training, your lifestyle, how you think that relates to top track or not, sorry, top cyclist and then we're going to debate about training. Like what your your coach Joe, Joe Bossard, has gotten really into cycling training. I'm convinced cycling training is a scam. No one knows what they're talking about. So we're going to debate how do these guys get so fast? Since running training seems to be like almost down to a science at this point. I feel like you could talk to 10 different cycling coaches and they would give you 10 different answers on how to get fast. But first up, tell us a little bit about your season. I don't know how public this is, but this is going to be your last pro running season. Is that correct? That's correct. And what events are you focusing on?
1: Yes. So Olympic year, big year. I'm focusing on officially the 5k, but I still have sights on a side quest of the 1500. My first love of events. I did the steeplechase at the Olympics in Rio in 2016. And then in Tokyo 2020. One, I ran the 1500. It would be super cool to be uh, the first Jamaican woman to run the 5k at the Olympics and then have sort of the suite of um, middle distance events uh, that I've competed at the highest level. You don't see that very often. So I think that would be a, a very cool thing to do. But I still love the 1500. It's so hard. It's so fun. But officially 5k side quest of the 1500.
0: I I don't know if I've, I'm, I feel like I'm remembering this correctly. Did you finish like top five at the world championships in the indoor 1500 yeah. at one point?
1: Uh, I was sixth, six, I was sixth, but it was actually a stacked year of what's really interesting about the women's 1500 is that it's the best it has ever been. We're living in, um, the, the best, deepest, most challenging fields the world record has been broken a few times in my uh lifetime as an athlete and that doesn't really happen very often um but yeah so i was six that world indoors in a very 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 stacked field which was pretty
0: sweet that's and that was like a side quest at the time you were yeah. a professional steeplechaser yeah. and you're like i'm just going to race the 1500 yeah. for an off season workout
1: yeah i was getting ready for commonwealth games which was in australia in 2018 And it was a World Indoor year, and we had been training up at super high altitude in Crested Butte, which is around nine thousand feet of elevation, and had some really nice days of weather. We had access to an indoor track, which we don't have in Boulder, and we were doing doing a little bit of an indoor season. And I had made a a massive jump and was running sort of world class times and beating very very good athletes in my two indoor races. And we thought like, ah, what the heck? Let's try to go to World Indoors and see how it goes. And I ended up six. That was really not part of the plan at all. I was just getting ready to steeple at Commonwealth Games. But it really catapulted my career to make me really think about stopping running the steeple. The steeple is a a long-distance hurdles race. And it's terrible on your body. Like Anytime I get an MRI of either one of my feet, it comes back with showing up several stress fractures. Both my naviculars are broken. I don't feel any of this anymore because I've like worked so hard on on my body and getting everything stronger. But there's a reason why people don't steeple for (laughs) 15 years because it's it's really tough on your body. But then you know that year gave me the gift of running flat events and being pretty good at it.
0: Yeah, Yeah, I'd say it worked out pretty well. It's it's funny you mentioned uh, not having an indoor track. I think I think about this all the time. People would be shocked if they knew how top American based track athletes train. Like and college it's so pampered like you would almost say probably the best facilities you would get anywhere in track and field and then you graduate college and like if people knew that Emma Coburn like international running superstar and you were running on you guys are basically poaching like middle school tracks right and you have to bounce around while yeah. they'll let you run on them and then you have to go to a different middle school or a different high school
1: Yeah so imagine being we have 14 people on our team now and Several people in the top thirty, top twenty, top ten in the world, and in the U.S. at their job, and we don't have a bathroom to use at our workplace. That really <laughs> shocks people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, track access—it's a—it's a, it's a weird—it's a weird deal. But we found a home at Niwot High School, which is which has been great, and we've got some porta potties that our team and a couple other professional teams pay for so we have a place to go to the bathroom. It's, it's disgusting. But yeah, yeah. Professional it, professional track athlete athlete life is, I think, kind of similar to professional cyclist life. If I I'm basing this off of the time I spend on the internet looking and reading about cycling and also watching um Unchained which was which was cool, but uh, to get into my training a little bit, I train right now about thirteen hours a week. I've I've been putting in thirteen hours a week for the last twelve or thirteen weeks. Um, I had a couple of weeks in there. I, I raced down in Chile at Pan American Games and unfortunately ended up hurting my heel. So I had three weeks there that I was only cycling for training, and I put in eighteen and a half hour weeks then which i was really excited i was i was flying over to monaco and saw on wout strava that i was (laughs) actually ahead of him in minutes of cycling for the week so that's one my one claim to fame for this year's cycling training but right now i run about in a seven day seven day average looking prospect about 70 miles a week plus five anywhere between four to six hours of cycling on top of that And we have been experimenting with adding cross-training in as a way to balance out the intensity of our training. Someone like me, I am the ripe age of 34 years old, and I've run a lot in my life. And my heart and my lungs want me to run 90 to 100 miles a week. I've done that in the past. But because I'm a more mature in age athlete, I will not say old that's a lot of wear and tear. So I I need to be a little bit smarter with the miles that I'm running and have them be more quality. And then I can add sort of low level cycling and to supplement that. And we have the benefit of having a coach who is spends way too much time thinking about this stuff. And he is very, very, very scientific in the way that he approaches training. I was just showing Spencer his latest training book that he is is into he's usually reading some sort of textbook and he's reading Inigo Mujika's book, Endurance Training, Science and Practice, Second Edition, which I was trying to figure out who is is that Magnus Court in the polka dots?
0: This is a good question. <laughs> this is like it's like really ambiguous. You know, I think it is Magnus Court because he has the Pac helmet. Yeah. And this, I mean Magnus Court, hilarious guy. Good writer. The first three stages of that tour, what was that? That was, must've been 2022 Two. when it was in Denmark. Yeah. And you're like, my one thesis about Denmark is very flat. <laughs> like, I think he got that KOM because he sprinted, there was like one highway overpass that he sprinted up. And you're like, it was three days of extremely flat racing. And then now they have like a world tour. Denmark has a world tour race one day. I'm like, I don't know if I need to see more of Denmark. Yeah. Like, yeah. They, I think I want to go visit. I want to go to Copenhagen. I don't know if I need to watch pro cyclists race around, but I guess it is really windy. So maybe they'll get some yeah. nice crosswinds there. But yeah, that's yeah. the,
1: that's the Jonas predicament. How did he get so good? Riding in the wind.
0: Yeah. Riding, riding the wind. Yeah. Riding my, my usual co-host Andrew Vance was like, this was two years ago. He's like, where the hell did this guy come from? Oh, was he just like riding around in fields? And then now he's winning the tour and then he watched the Unchained documentary and that is kind of what he was doing. (laughs) Just riding around.
1: In the worst possible conditions. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah,
0: I mean, they have a lot of good riders. I actually would be curious. You see clustering like this in cycling where you'll have, you know, some, and sometimes it's EPO related. Like there was all these great Canadian mountain bikers in the 90s and then you found out they were all just using EPO. But like Denmark and Norway are now like the hot places for cyclists. And 10 years ago, it was like the young Swedes were really good. And you kind of get these clustering of writers that are like good from the same country. And I don't really have an explanation for it. I mean, Lance Armstrong's theory was, it's kind of simplistic, but it could be right where it just, you see your countrymen doing well and you're like, oh, if that guy can do it, I know I can do it. And then it kind of elevates everybody's game.
1: If you can see it, you can be it 100%. Yeah. I really think that that has a lot to do with it. And the way that Magnus Court was celebrated during that during that tour, it's like, wow, this guy is hitting a cultural moment here and how many little kids saw that. And then, you know, they think cycling is cool. And then, you know, if you have a bunch more people with access to this idea, then maybe they pick it up. And inevitably, there'll be kids with talent that are the ones picking up their bicycles from seeing that out in the world.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And you guys are riding a lot. I mean, I I do think it's a good idea because, you know, like both you and your husband will have feet problems. I'd imagine if I ran every day for 15, 20 years, I'd have pretty bad feet too. Just the human foot isn't really designed to handle that. And just running is hard on your body. Cycling is not that hard on your body. So that makes a lot of sense that Joe would have you guys supplement your running training with cycling. Yeah. I remember you came over and used our Peloton on Swift one time and you did a hard ride. It was like three hours, pretty high power. I'm like, I can't believe she walked home. Like I'd be, <laughs> I'd be destroyed. There's no way I could walk home. I was well, still you, in awe.
1: You changed you Spencer, I have to credit you with part of this paradigm shift because I I had a really bad freak knee injury and subsequent surgery into your comeback in 2021 right before the tokyo olympics and the first thing that i was able to do from my knee surgery was spin with no resistance and that was the first thing that i could really do for training and so before i could run i was consistently riding three to four hours like pretty hard but i would get halfway through these rides and think like there's no way i i don't even know how to spell my name anymore like this is so hard and i can't i'm not pushing mots anymore like what's going on and I was telling this to Spencer, and he asked what I was fueling with. <laughs> I <laughs> forgot I about this. Like, <laughs> I had a couple of noon tabs. He's like, "That's about 15 calories total." So we're gonna need to reassess this. And you, I came over and was set up on your on your Peloton. You had the power pedals going. You had like a snack table lined up for me with like shot blocks and different gels and whatever. And I was flying. And we've revisited the cross training. My my training partner Emma Coburn had a really bad hamstring tear at the end of her year last year. And she they started revisiting the cross training. And same thing was she was having a hard time keeping her heart rate up. And I came back with a bowl of Haribo. And she was like, Oh wow, I'm feeling good. So we've learned from cycling is uh, running training is way more scientific. We're so dialed in. All of us are wearing heart rate monitors all the time some people are wearing stride pods our coaches routinely taking lactate on us we've done lactate step tests a lot of people have done vo2 tests we're really dialed in with like our efforts and whatever and then our, our all of our training goes into this huge platform called runalize and our coaches consistently monitoring trends on all of us and we're able to avoid a lot of injuries and illnesses for the most part and and get really fit with more inv- individualized training but what we've learned from cycling is that fueling is important. And running is so archaic in the way that we would go out and just bang out these, you know, 15 to 17 mile long runs at, you know, below six minute pace average on a sip of water. And you'd feel like the bottom of a trash can for about three days. After that. <laughs> <laughs> and now, you know, we're taking gels. And when I'm training on the bike, I'm drinking my, what I call super Gatorade, which I I just make extra strength Gatorade. So I'm making sure that I'm getting the 40 or 60 grams an hour that we've learned from the Peloton.
0: But yeah, the high carb revolution started in my basement two years ago. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny you say that about cycling, about the scientific of the training, because Team Sky, great team, like had a lot of success through the years, won something like I think they won like six out of eight Grand Tour, no, maybe seven out of eight Tour de France's in a row, perhaps. I'm not looking at the figures in front of me, but pretty good team, you'd say. Pumped a lot of money, like to the tune of 50 million US dollars a year into the team. And they were doing what you're just, like they were starving themselves during rides. The thought, and this was not long ago, this was like 10 10 to five years ago. They would just starve themselves on rides. It was just like, don't eat, drink as little as possible. I guess like high protein. Keto. Keto. Yeah. And like, I think Chris Froome is still doing this. And this is one of the theories as to why he's so slow relative to the rest of the Peloton now. And it's like, just in the last few years, they realized like, Hey, you should eat a bunch when you're trying to ride and burn a bunch of calories because your body's like a furnace and needs to burn energy to then put out massive amounts of energy. And this like just started when I'm like, how did anyone miss this? How, How was this a thing that just happened recently? I mean, I did a race and I'm not, I would not say I'm in particularly good shape, especially relative to where I used to be like five and a half hours. This was last fall. And I found these, these uh, bottles, like a drink mix. And it was like 320 calories per bottle, 90 grams of carbs. So you can drink that easily in an hour. You, You could take, if you really wanted to, you could be consuming like 750 calories per hour on on the bike, which was really tough to do before that. So it is like really simple. Just put a bunch of carbs in and you'll get out a bunch of power. And I was able to push like five hours into this race, pretty big numbers that I probably couldn't do when I was like training a lot and super fit because my body was just starved and didn't know that I didn't know that I had to feed it. But you also see these attacks coming from further and further out like Rimco over the weekend mm-hmm. attacks, you know, like 50k. We we didn't know because they like didn't have the ticker. On the screen so we just had to guess how far away it was but he attacked 50k out pretty easy pretty routine just like soloed into the finish line like that would have been inconceivable five years ago i think philippe shelbert might have been 2018 tour of flanders he attacked really far out like 90k 80k out maybe less than that and it blew people's mind like they didn't know that that was possible but you know, if you're fueling and you just kind of think about it like a math problem, it's like, well, if he can hold that power and he can consume enough carbs to push himself through that final hour of racing, it actually shouldn't be that hard for him. So I'm a little dubious when I see all these cycling. It's like, oh, we've got the cycling science down. I'm like, do you? Because you told me that five years ago yeah. and you didn't. Like, what are we going to know in five years from now?
1: Yeah, yeah. I do think to your earlier proposition that this has got to be. A huge reason why we're seeing incredible performances, like this is groundbreaking, even though as you as you're saying, like duh right, like put yeah, gas in tank with, yeah, <laughs> that helps. go fast, obviously, but I, I don't really know it, the in running it was more like a vibe, right, like we don't stop, we are so strong, we don't need anything, um, and then when you think about it more it. It does make a lot of sense, but, um, I also think that the, the nutrition companies and their formulations, it's like, it's easier to digest. You're not going to need a nature break because they figured out a way to be able to get this high octane fuel in your body in a way that you can stomach it and manage it and just keep going. And it's also not just in the moment I'm noticing it. I've got these, uh, 40 gram gels. They're so awesome. It takes me about a mile to get them down because they're kind of big. But then a mile later, I feel like I hit the stars in Mario Kart. I'm feeling awesome. And it's not just in the moment that I feel better. It's the next day I'm not waking up or I'm not sitting around drinking my morning coffee with the achy leg feeling that I would have in the past where I just had taken myself into, you know, the negative zone of my body is completely empty and feeding off its own muscles to I've got something in the in the tank and my recovery is so much better. So imagine doing the 21 day stage race yeah, and yeah. you're not you're not killing yourself and taking yourself to the, the depths of hell that you might have in the past.
0: Yeah. And I think I mean, you proposed a question maybe last summer. You're like, why? Why? Yeah. How is everyone getting so fast? I just got off a call actually with some insiders in the sport who are saying that it's like Mark Cavendish right now is putting out higher power numbers at the Tour of Columbia than he was when he was at HTC 10 years ago, winning like four or five stages per Tour de France. So you ask yourself, like, how is this possible? And, you know, he he maybe will win one stage of this tour, but he's not the sport's most dominant sprinter. But how is this man getting better every year? And, you know, George Hincapie said, everyone is getting better every year, but Everyone's staying in the same place in the Peloton. So you just mm-hmm. kind of ask yourself, like, how is this possible? Some of it probably could be attributed to people are just eating a correct amount and that they're not starving all the time and that will see your power numbers go up. I guess, another, and maybe some other ones would be Yeah. Like really young riders are really good now. Like we just saw um, two of them on. It was actually nice to see Adam Yates, a man in his thirties, just dismantle the youngsters on the final day. Sorry guys, I got it. (laughs) But really these young riders are incredible. Like Isaac, or I guess it's like Isaac del Toro, the Mexican sensation. You know, I think he's just turned 20 years old and he's coming in and like, he was the only rider over the weekend that could challenge Rimco at that race. And you're like, how is this possible that all these young riders are just so good? You know, but maybe in the past their team directors would be like, well, like, you know, you've got to work for other people and that now you're seeing more freedom for these young riders and that's elevating the entire peloton. Because if you have, let's say you have 20% of the riders that are young and talented and they would have been just like working for a team leader or not even allowed to attack or ride fast because it's like not how it's done or not even there because they're in the U23 ranks, which are... I think not appropriate like if you're a really good 19 20 year old you should just go pro it's with the a, big dogs waste of your time to go u23 and a lot of times you can regress because it's not easy living you know you're not making any money or maybe you're making some money not a lot living in poor conditions the races are hard maybe don't even you can't even use your superior physicality because it's not super like tough courses it's more of like skill-based And like explosive explosion based, which isn't good for someone like Jonas Vindigo, for example, who didn't do that great at those level races, but you just put these guys in the big races, they do good. So maybe just having the most talented riders in the race is making the races faster, little simplistic, but that's a, that's a theory. And then I kind of wonder, I kind of think that riders are just better. Like maybe it's just an anomalous statistical anomaly where you know, you don't want to drag on anyone from the mid twenty tens, but we had like two or two tour, Tours de Frances where, like, Roman Bardet was second, and it's like Roman Bardet's is probably just as good as he was back then. Yeah, and he's not even going to get he's anywhere not in, close to in second. In the conversation, yeah, yeah, or maybe he was. There was a year where he was second. He was on the podium, and his teammate was on the podium, who was like in his mid thirties and a professional mountain biker who just raced road on the side. And you're like, maybe that wasn't like the cream of the crop in terms yeah. of talent, you know, without, we're not on the move so we can say stuff like this. No one will hear it, but <laughs> not, not that we're, on, we're not on the main channel anymore. But, you know, I do kind of think that the level is just higher. If you look back at the last few tours and especially Vuelta's and Giros where you had Garrett Thomas and Primus Roglic duking it out at the Giro, you wouldn't have had that level of talent probably five, six years ago or, you know, where you have Tade and Jonas at the tour. Like that's a little bit different than Vincent's O'Nibali winning by seven and a half minutes yeah. in 2014. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And I listened to the the pod with, is this the correct pronunciation? Richard Pluga? Pluga? Pl-
0: Pluga. Pluga. He liked it. Yeah. He, he told us how to pronounce his name before that podcast. <laughs> it kind of is Pluga, Pluga? but it's not. Pluga? We're not Dutch, so we, yeah. <laughs> we really can't re- mimic it.
1: Yeah. Whatever. Uh, sorry. Richard Pluga. I listened to his podcast uh, with you. And I think that uh, Visma now, not Gambo, Visma, uh, the idea of like talent acquisition and like actually looking for talented writers. When I was hearing that, I thought, are you absolutely joking me? Like, this is a new idea. This (laughs) is, this is supposed to be a groundbreaking idea. Like this is, this is, NCAA recruitment for a track and field team. like, of course, you're looking for talent in unexpected ways. And if i were if I were recruiting for a running team, I would look at states with really challenging weather conditions. Like I would look at the state of Minnesota. And if you have a, a high school kid running fast in the spring in Minnesota, you think maybe what were they doing in the winter? Maybe they were Nordic skiing, maybe they were on their basketball team. they're they're making rubbing two nickels together and yeah, getting yeah. a diamond. You're looking at Colorado kids who have this big aerobic base, but maybe their times aren't that fa- as fast as the California kids who have perfect weather year round. So these principles of like scouting it seems like such an obvious proposition, but when Visma is the leader in cycling and talking about how like this is a major advantage to them, it it makes me think that this is just truly the first time we're seeing the Best of the best coming out of different corners of the planet, talent wise.
0: Yeah, I thought, yeah, yeah. I've been reflecting on that interview as well. And I thought that was the most interesting thing he said because people often criticize them of like, oh, they just have more money than everyone else. So they can pay to, but to they don't. go to training camps. Yeah, they don't. I mean, I guess their budget has gone up and they're probably one of the wealthier teams now, but they're not the wealthiest team. And I guess Christoph Laporte said he'd never been to an altitude camp that before he went my to the team. Mine. Yeah. mine. I can't.
1: Mid-level college runners in the U.S. have been to an altitude camp, not <laughs> people making millions of dollars or at least hundreds of thousands of euros every year in the pro peloton. It astounds me that someone at that high a level has not trained at altitude. I, I, I It's it's unconscionable. Like, I can't think, I, I don't understand how this happens.
0: And it's not like he's not from like American Samoa. You know, it's not right. that different. Yeah, yeah. He lives in France. He could yeah. just easily get to high altitude. Yeah. I do think, well, we'll circle back on that. There's like a whole French cycling angle there where I think they're almost rejecting modern techniques. I don't know why. I don't know. I think there's a lot maybe broken with French cycling where they're like, holding themselves back without realizing it. I mean, if you really want to dig into the, the French team unchained episode, you see a lot of questionable decisions being made there, (laughs) but as
1: a a TiVo Pino stan for life. Yes.
0: But Pluga saying that really the thing that they optimized was not, they were able to do those training camps because they didn't waste money on pad riders. And it might sound simple, but it's like, you know, let's say Caleb Ewan, I think made 1.5 million euros last year. It's a huge lift for his lotto team. And think of everything lotto couldn't do as they're paying that salary and nothing against Caleb Ewan personally, but he's just not delivering them the value they need for that amount of money. They could have done a lot of things with that money. And you see that with, I mean, that was like standard in cycling. Just like blow money on riders who never would, would never return that. And if you don't do that, crazy idea. You can spend that money on things that make the riders better like yeah. altitude camps. It's a really simple idea that I guess wasn't adopted for a while. I mean, I interviewed with the team a few years ago and was going to like help them on these recruitment strategies and they're basically like what's your thesis and I'm like sign good riders. Try to sign good riders and I'm like do you guys like you know how do you what what is your internal calculation for x rider produces why results and gets paid z you know because that's the matrix matrix you should use if someone wins two races a year and they're making 2 million euros a year probably not a good value out of that rider but if they're making 60,000 euros a year that's really good value and they were like oh no we don't even can, we don't even know what people make and i'm like well this is like that's not great and i didn't get the job so <laughs> <laughs> but who who knows what could have been but yeah. It was actually with Alpus and Dakonik, and then I watched that Unchained episode where they got, the guy run, run, runs the team is so intense and I was like, maybe maybe that was for the best. I don't know yeah. if that would have worked out that well. But it is kind of funny that it's like, oh, we just signed good riders and it, and it works out well. And I think maybe a component of that is, and, and guys used to get, you know, you didn't really have to produce results, but if you're just like a known entity, you could race into your mid to late thirties and make a de- make decent money and never get any results and you just get re-signed, re-signed, re-signed. Why? I guess you're just a pleasant presence in the team. I think that culture is going away where they're now managers are realizing like, I could be signing cheap 20-year-old, 21-year-olds who are going to produce results. So maybe I won't keep signing veteran riders who don't produce. But there was a theory, I think it was Rain terame put forth this theory that during the EPO era, there wasn't a lot of focus on it, optimizing anything because didn't really matter what you did if you just on tons of EPO it's like really just go spin the legs do some training and you're going to be fast so teams not only did riders get lazy but like teams got lazy and they didn't really It's just like well if the if the cocktail's right the team will do well and then when EPO became harder and harder to use like in massive amounts and I'm not saying it's not being used anymore but definitely not in the same way it used to be used then I I mean, maybe EPO is not being used. You see a lot of these positive tests are like shoulder drugs, if Mm -hmm. you will, like kind of ways to maybe starve yourself and then keep your hormone production up by putting it in externally. But when that went away and it got harder to do in the mid 2010s, this goes back to our Froome destroying everyone conversation. Just no one knew how to do anything. It was like house cats who are then living outside. And then now people are finally getting smarter about it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you don't have to. If you don't have to do the work. You don't have to do the work, and you're not going to think about the work because it's not even part of your calculus of like how do you do your job. You just boop, 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 and you have your little cocktail, and you are succeeding. And if if that's never part of the thought process of how do I get better, if you've never had to think of how do I get better, you're just not going to think about it. You're not going to have you're not going to have strategies. You're not going to have training theory, let alone a bunch of processes in place to get you to where you need to go, you know, you're not going to have periodization of your training. It's just going to be like if you're taking shortcuts, you don't have to think about the long term. So, it makes sense why there was such a lag and now we're seeing things come back, come back around with with talent, with proper training, proper nutrition. And I think, you know, cycling operates to my understanding, these great teams operate on a much higher budget than the track and field world. Um but seeing it all all come together, like, well, no wonder they're doing so well. Like I look at uh, the tour and I'm thinking of like, all right, well, we're I was up training in San Maritz before the last tour. Was this last summer? Or the summer before that when Wout Van Art was there? I that was this summer. Oh, I think that was this yeah. summer, yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we're always on there's always a Wout Watch going there's always on. A, yeah. I, I
1: have to put out a PSA, and it's really more of an apology to Wout Van Art. I did send him a DM a couple summers ago because I, I I just want to apologize and say I'm actually a very normal person. <laughs> I'm a really good athlete and normal person. I have friends. I don't <laughs> have a poster of you in my house or anything like that. I think you're just a cool athlete, cool rider. And I just wanted to see if you wanted to go for a run once in the forest in leuven where i where i base and then i saw that you were in san moritz when i was there and just was i looking around for you on the roads maybe i was but just to say good job but i did i did unsend the dm so i don't think you ever read it or maybe if he did read it he ignored it Um, but anyway back to my original (laughs) point when we are on a training camp when the parallels between professional distance running and and cycling is we we do similar buildups of like you put in a huge base season. You see these riders in the fall winter just logging, you know, twenty plus hour weeks doing all this you know crazy base work. it's not it's not intense. It's not a lot of impressive riding, just a ton of hours. We do the same thing, ton of mileage, lots of threshold work, whatever. And then you see them shift into a, a more of a race mode or a pre, pre-competition mode. And maybe you train at altitude. I live in Boulder, Colorado at, what are we, 5,700 feet or something like that here?
0: Yeah, I just calibrated this morning. Yeah, let what, what the garment my, says. It says 55. I mean, we are in North Boulder. It could be closer to 56.
1: Yeah, I think, I think we're right around there. That's so, like
0: 1,700 meters or something like that, if yeah. you don't know use feet.
1: If, yeah, if we're doing meters, and then some, some of the year I'm at three thousand meters in Crested Butte, and you use that altitude time to like really galvanize your training, you're turning the screw a little bit, getting ready, and then you go down to sea level and you crush it. The difference between professional runner altitude camp and world tour team is there is no chef, there is no dietitian with you, there is no team masseur There's for I mean, for us, we're a we're an independent team. We all have our own separate shoe sponsors. We're really self-powered in this. if like, I'm paying for my training camp. I'm going to San Moritz. I'm getting my place on booking.com. I'm walking to coop every day and we take good care of each other. We're all we're, you know, we have a cooking rotation and I cook one day, Emma cooks the next day, Corey cooks the next day. But I'm I'm just thinking of like, if you, if I had the the budget for these things like how much better could my performance be if you're you know crossing off all of these things so all you need to do is just get your minutes in do your training and then just totally chill out for the the rest of the day and that's for me the beauty of training camp is like i i don't really need to walk my dog or yeah you deal with the minutia of owning a home or anything anything like that but i do think that the world tour teams are are doing an incredible job at preparing these athletes or at least like taking taking the load of living off so that they can just train
0: there are a few riders. Uh, I'm a big training camp person too. Like give me a week in Tucson and I am I might be in the tour. Yeah. I'm flying. <laughs> but I think like Alexander Kristoff never does them. He's just like at home because he has like a million kids. So he's at home all the time in Norway training. <laughs> like he sh- he might be the best cyclist in the world. Yeah. <laughs> if he's doing as well as he's doing. But you actually see it pay off. Like if it's really bad weather or a really oddball race, he tends to do better than other people. And I do kind of attribute that to training in norway all the time and just probably like diff diff not difficult conditions but just like yeah you know, it's like oh my god the kids are making noise and going it's just like your life is kind of constant chaos but it does instill a bit of like hard mentality in your mind you can totally. like handle anything and then i guess mads petterson i heard that he's never done a train an altitude training game before he just started this year he's really good go figure yeah where it is yeah i don't it's, it's, but so I understand it with running more. It's definitely a slam dunk. Like go up to altitude, train, drop down, race. Like that's a s- easy calculation. Sometimes I wonder with with cycling where like you'll see Remco go up to altitude. He'll come down if he does a one off event. He's absolutely flying, or he's flying first day of the volta But you know you're at the you're all at the same altitude together for three weeks during a Grand Tour. You do kind of wonder like do the benefits wear off by week three? Or is your body adapted? is just existing at altitude good for your body and you get better and better and better. And maybe that's still helping you in week three.
1: If I was a physiologist on a world tour team and I uh, would be thinking about this problem, I would be looking at um, hemoglobin, hematocrit, ferritin levels. Um, Maybe I would test this of like, an earlier season uh, racing situation where you come down from altitude, you feel great, probably because all of your levels are um, are elevated. You're feeling really good. Your um, br- your breath rate and your perceived effort is is lower. There are some weird things that can happen, like if you're not used to going up and down. Like a lot of athletes say, on day five, they feel really weird at sea level coming from altitude like day 5, day 10, you know, you're just like encountering these physiological chal- challenges and changes to your body, but I would be testing this and I would be taking little blood panels throughout throughout their time coming back to sea level to just get a gauge on like what's actually happening. And do you need to in fact go to altitude for 6 weeks? Like is that more beneficial for you? Can you hold your altitude blood levels longer? If you're if you're at altitude for longer instead of like a three-week training camp, like just trying to optimize for how how can your body feel best, perform best, and how can you use these training tools to your advantage so that you can hold your peak form for long.
0: Interesting. I guess cycling, I, yeah, I was just thinking about as you were saying that, I mean, that's a good idea. I guess cycling is complicated even more than running because like you can go to Crescent Butte in the wintertime and run probably couldn't ride like they're quite no. restricted i'm just trying to think of places with altitude in europe like a ski resort obviously where you would not be able to ride i'm i am surprised that it's not a trend of people like going to ski resorts in the wintertime and just training indoors yeah i would not be shocked if that's yeah. like a trend in five years yeah you can't go to the canary islands the only i guess bottleneck there is like there's one hotel really high up and that's where like everybody stays people tend to like lose their minds up there cuz it's you're just yeah. like in a high desert nothing going on and it does kind of feel like if you get the more you can stomach being up there the easier it is like being yeah. up in Crested Butte is yeah. probably even though it's, it's cold
1: prob- it's-, it's probably similar though i i got 6 weeks up there and by the end you know i didn't grow up there Crested Butte is a lovely town i love it have a condo there no knock on Crested Butte but To get to a target you have to drive two and a half hours to montrose (laughs) and so just like your creature comforts of you know doordash like these things that we've grown accustomed to in the modern era which i should just you know get over it but you encounter loneliness and loneliness is also a killer of like yeah if you're if the vibe is off it doesn't matter right like this can be the best thing for your body but if your mind isn't there or it's starting to feel like sacrifice instead of choice then like that's going to be inhibiting of your performance also so i would think it would be awesome like you go up to a ski resort with your buddies you're on the rollers you're getting fit nobody else is doing this that's that's also like another a, a good Mental piece to it is like when we're up in Crested Butte. I'm thinking like there's nobody in the world that's training at higher altitude than we are in the Rift Valley. Like like in up up in Kenya, you know, we're at the same altitude. We're at the we're the same altitude as as the Ethiopians. Like there's nobody in the world that's doing things that we're you know we're not doing. Other than if people are doing gray area stuff or God forbid doping, we're not doing that. But we're doing we're doing the best possible thing for our body that a clean athlete can can be doing. And I think it'd be kind of fun. I think somebody should try it out, like go up and surely some of these guys have some ski condos somewhere. They could just hunker down, crank out some fire playlists, start watching some Netflix series and just like yeah, I would, do it.
0: that's essentially what you guys are doing. A yeah. lot of times in Crested Beach, you're just running indoors. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It just gets really cold there and very, very snowy. There's times where, you know, there's five feet of snow on the ground. so. Yeah, you're on you're on a treadmill a lot.
0: I guess that's I guess now that I think about it, that's kind of the whole point of Boulder that it became popular with endurance athletes because it's high, not a ski resort. You know, it's like I can see snow outside, but it's very sunny. Yeah. So you can recreate if you have to, and I guess it's less popular with cyclists than it used to be. It used to be really popular with pro cyclists. Like, why 80s, do you think that 90s. is? I think it's because. I think a few things. I think racing in the U S is essentially dead. So people used to base themselves here and race in the U S also some people used to base themselves here and race in Europe, but the idea of basing yourself in the U S and racing in Europe is pretty much dead now. Like nobody does that anymore because
1: just because of travel time. Yeah, I
0: guess travel time, maybe some of the, like I talked to Larry Warbus who's an American, but he lives full-time in Nice and he was saying he just comes back once a year because the day's. It's hard on your body, and the days he misses training just aren't worth it to go back and forth. It's yeah. like more advantageous to stay there, live there, race there. So if you race in Europe, you pretty much are in Europe all the time. Like Riley, Riley Sheehan just moved to Girona. He's a Boulder local, and I guess he'll come back probably for like a month in the off season, maybe, and stay with his family. But you know he's not going to live here like people used to, and that probably makes sense if you are racing so much in Europe. Yeah. But if you're a track athlete or runner you're kind of just parachuting into events. So Mm -hmm. I almost feel like since I've lived here, Boulder's gotten more and more popular with triathletes. It's almost like Triathlete central now.
1: Yeah. No, it really is. It really is. One of my really, really good friends is Holly Lawrence, who is a 70.3 world champion. And she and her husband, Sean, who was... One of the first pair of twins to break four in the mile NCAA champion back in Indiana back in the day, sort of athletic power couple. They had been living and training in L.A., which is kind of an unconventional place for triathletes. And they just moved here this year and this past year and have thought, like, why did we wait so long to come here? This is truly triathlete mecca. Um, And you've got Olympic Champion flor Duffy, Rennie down the street. Like there are some of the best triathletes of all time live in Boulder, live and train in Boulder, and it, it just makes total sense. You've got outdoor pools. The running here is is the best running in the world, and this is an altitude that's sustainable. A lot of runners wouldn't actually come to Boulder for an altitude training camp because they don't think it's high enough. People are more attracted to like a Flagstaff. Elevation so somewhere around that 7,000 feet, Yeah, but that's not the like Europeans would come would come to Boulder for, for this altitude, but this is a su- sustainable altitude in that you can actually come close to hitting real race pace efforts. Whereas if you're, if you're higher up, you're, you're training slower. And I would assume that that's, that would be the same on a bike too. It's like, it's just, yeah. it's too high. To be able to sustainably train hard,
0: yeah, I'm probably and maybe in the minority here, but I feel like I almost atrophy. Like if I'm in Aspen, I'm just not pushing. No, the power numbers I would push here, and it's like if I'm up there for a month, I'm just getting like, not, I am getting weaker and weaker. Maybe not slower and slower, but if I go back down to sea level, it would be a shock to my body. Yeah, I just lose the muscle. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, totally.
0: So yeah, it. it I yeah, the fly, I wonder about the flagstaff thing, and I was, you know, having meals with some people in london recently who were like so what's the deal with boulder versus durango and it's like well Boulder's basically a suburb of denver you know like we're not very far we're from denver far. so you know so a lot of people don't like that like if you're real colorado bro you're out of here you're moving to Telluride. you're in durango they don't want to be on the credit front range but i kind of like that because of the creature comforts like if you're in flagstaff you're in flagstaff and like yeah. they do have an airport but it's expensive yeah you're really far from phoenix like I would struggle with that isolation, I think.
1: Completely. And it's also, most of my races are not in the U.S. either. And if you're traveling internationally, like I made three or four international trips last year, and I can just take the bus out to Denver and fly direct to London, Frankfurt, Munich, Tokyo, wherever I need to, to race. So it just makes life less stressful, less less friction if you can do your job and not feel like you're on a huge schlep.
0: Why is it not, it's like not a thing at all for runners, for American runners to live in Europe full-time? Is that just not because there's just not the volume of events to make that worth it? Like you can just travel That's a very there? good
1: question, actually. it's a very good question. American Athletes like Team USA Americans are—they receive. I think there's there's a couple reasons. One, they receive a lot of support from the USOPC. If you have an injury or if you have anything, you can go to a training center and and get cared for. American-based athletes tend to make more money on average than all other countries. USA Track and Field puts a lot of time and money into growing the sport and it's also the hardest olympic team to make so i think that the focus is having like there's just so much depth here that like being in the place where you know making your team is what most people center their year around is more valuable to them to be based here than to, to do diamond leagues.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I guess not because you, your most important races are your Olympic trials. Yeah. If you're not qualifying for Olympics, it's going to be tough. So that's the race issue. I guess also tracks are the same tracks. A are track the same, in yeah. Europe is the same as a track here. Yeah, yeah. So like part and of the par- yeah.
1: most of the best, most of the best coaches are based in the U S which is, it is really interesting. It's like our, our most lucrative racing season is summer in Europe, but everyone's here
0: it's fun yeah I, a lot of this is just i feel like it's it's bigger than my brain like it feels like coaching is such an industry in running like you have yeah. these like superstar coaches yeah. and in cycling it's almost like should a lot of these guys just be coaching cycling like is inigo samalan the inigo smartest San person Milan. in the world he like, is yeah you know michele ferrari controversial figure I, I think he's a pretty good coach at the base of it and like, that's a huge advantage of in cycling. We were talking before we recorded about cycling training. I kind of wonder a theory I have is you, it's really just training zone to add extreme, extremely high volumes, some intervals. And I almost feel like the coaches are managing rest. Like that's the big difference. There may be our riders who are just showing up and you're not, they're not fit enough. They didn't do the work, but I don't think that's very common anymore. I almost think the reason people aren't good is they're overtrained or they cut too much weight. They got too skinny. Like, those are the two things that coaches manage. Like San Milan is telling them when to rest and when to eat, and like everyone's doing the work. And like that's the secret sauce, I, I think.
1: There is no shortcut for the hours needed. Like that's something I've I've learned coming from a terrible uh, knee injury. Is that you cannot fake it. You really cannot fake it. I it took me, you know, almost two years to come back to the form needed to be competing with the best in the world. That is a huge component for sure. Like I think you're right on the money with like the amount of zone two needed. I do think that they could be doing better. Obviously, rest is huge, right? Like I just said, I'm training 13-ish hours a week. That doesn't account for like gym sessions and body work and sports psychology, whatever. But so let's say let's say if you put everything that I'm doing together, I may be looking at like 20 hours a week. That's not a full-time job, but the rest of my time is truly spent like recovering. And it's not, it's, we have wearables now. You can see when you're, when you're recovering and when you're not, you know, I've got an aura ring that shows me my heart rate and my HRV every night. And all these things that's like in the past, I think underutilized the importance of like true like non-sleep deep relaxation and all of these abilities to like go parasympathetic sympathetic parasympathetic sympathetic and all of these processes in our bodies that are really important so yeah managing rest is huge i just think that inigo is probably the only one who's like truly coaching and this is just coming from my like deep depths of twitter (laughs) twitter reconnaissance but athletics in any it doesn't matter what sport it is it's it is science so the fact that people are just vibing it out there they're just riding they're like i'm just gonna get my hours in and i'm not gonna really worry about the efforts like i think that that is criminal like how are we not how are we not coaching this how are we not like you're also not all the same people right like you all have different engines under the hood like where is the specialization where is when you when you have someone like Jonas who has an insane VO2 max like one of the higher highest recorded ever VO2 maxes in the world it's like yeah well he's probably not going to need to do very many VO2 max sessions he's not going to need to do as many intervals but maybe he needs to work on his power maybe he needs to work on his torque maybe he needs to work on something different than somebody who doesn't have as high of a VO2 max. And that's where it blows my mind that there is not like programming seemingly for cycling, that it's just like, you're just out there and you're stopping for a coffee and you're what, I mean, what?
0: I think what's happened in the last even half decade in cycling, and it used to be X riders would be considered good coaches. And you'd even see this at the amateur levels, like the guy was the local pro. He should be training us. He knows what he's doing. And I noticed this like, you know, five, six years ago locally, like really good riders would be like, yeah, some cat four from Colorado Springs is coaching me. And I'm like, oh, that's a little funny. Like, you know, your instinct is like, well, what does he know about racing? But it's actually not the same talent coaching someone and being a good rider. And it started to trickle up almost to the world tour where now I'm assuming EF does this now. They have like scientists train the riders. And I know for a fact that's what Visma does. It's just, I was talking to a team manager who was like, doctors should be training these people. Like this should just not be like, I know how to train because I've done it myself and I'm going to tell someone what to do. Or it's like actual professional scientists are training these people. And that's probably why we're seeing, also why we're seeing the level go up.
1: Yeah, oh, completely. And I, I think, I think you need a little bit of both. I mean, scientists... Don't necessarily have they they haven't felt firsthand what it takes to send your body into absolute oblivion for a result. Like you can see it on paper, but to have like the living breathing feel of it all is it is a different ball game. So I think you need both. I think you can't expect to do superhuman feats without thought behind it and without I mean, Yeah, direction and guidance from somebody who knows like what what is the the goal behind what you're doing, and that's where in running you know there's so many different training methodologies, and and you can you can pick up a book and you can read about whatever, and you don't necessarily need to be a a physiologist. But when you're getting to the very top level, and you're and now access to all this information is so much easier. Where most coaches in Boulder have a lactate meter and are reading like what's happening physiologically to their athletes. It's like you you're missing out if you're not, if you're not at least having someone with a, with an eye on your training that knows what's going on. But then, yeah, then you need both. Maybe, maybe you have, you have that physiologist, but then you have like the, the coach who's there for the mentals of it all of like, this is, you guys are going into battle and today we will win.
0: Yeah. And I guess that's what you've seen. Like when you watch unchained, we do not have a partnership with unchained. I've mentioned this show like 50 times, but the, the guy screaming at them, like, come on, Jonas. He is not Gershon. Neiman is not coaching them. Yeah. Like coaching their training. He's like their race coach,
1: which I love.
0: Yeah. And you have seen this like division of labor, which I think is helpful. And I think the reason for that originally was you used to just like go have your, you would have your own coach and you would race for whatever team you're on. I think what happened is people would like be naughty. They would go to like naughty coaches and then the teams <laughs> wanted to control what yeah. the riders were doing. Yeah, so they brought sense. it all in house yeah. thinking that it's safer that way. And it probably yeah. is.
1: Yeah. Come on, <laughs> <laughs> guy,
0: like, he's like popped up like uh, a friend of mine as a youtube channel and he's like got picked up by the, at the train station by him i'm like oh, this is like the biggest celebrity in the world picked My you gosh. up at the train station
1: unbelievable man
0: if only i could meet gersha yeah. but one thing i wanted to ask you about we were debating this like all these professional cyclists are like skipping the i guess not all of them but like wildven are skipping the tour Matthew Vanderpool maybe skipping the tour to focus on the Olympic road race. As an Olympian, I thought you would be a good person to take take the temperature on this. I understand, like track and field Olympics, very important. Cycling, people often say, like, I swear, every time I watch the Olympics, would be like, huh, didn't know road racing was in the Olympics. <laughs> it's, it, I feel like it's almost like included, like that they put it in the corner. It's like the first day they pat it on its head and like, oh, road cycling, you're so cute, and. It's just, I cannot believe people are, these big riders are focusing on the Olympics so much. It drives me insane to a point where, because it's so, it's kind of a random race. It's done with your national team, which which is really fun as a viewer. Like, I love the national team races because everything, no one really works together. Like, okay, I'm not, I'm not on... I'm Wout and Jonas. You're
1: not. Yeah, Wout's not going to be working for Remka. Yeah,
0: like we don't (laughs) work together. We just happen to be on the same national team. I get paid by Visma. They're still signing my checks at the end of the day. And I'm going to be competing against this guy at the Vuelta next week. So it's like tenuous. It's actually a great, it's like perfect because it's like tenuous alliances, small teams. The teams don't work very well together. They're secret teammates stacked throughout the race. But then the courses, I mean, it is cool because it's just, even if the course isn't hard, like they did it in London and everyone thought it was going to be a sprint finish and if you race 250 kilometers really hard it is selective because that's how people race, but it often produces like a somewhat random winner. I, so I'm surprised people focus so much on it. Like, do you think this is cool? And that now like cycling is becoming an Olympics sport. I, I kind of don't like the hot take. Don't really like the Olympics. I feel like the less thomas bach has to do with your sport the better your sport is i mean i guess the nba now you know is kind of embracing the olympics more and that's cool but i'm always wary of like the olympic alliance like i feel like that's gonna work out well for the ioc and maybe not for the actual sport but what's your take on this are you excited that it's like featured at the olympics now
1: Hot take. I disagree with everything you're saying. <laughs>
0: <laughs> also, hey, hole in my theory. Everything, not
1: everything. <laughs> I'm like, they <laughs> should
0: do the tour. ASO only looks out for the riders. Uh,
1: yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's really cool, actually. I think that there's a couple of pieces to this puzzle that make this specific Olympics unique. It being in Paris, it being in Europe, where all of these riders live. The Olympics is. It's just cool. Everybody in the world who knows anything who's a- had a thought about sport knows the Olympics. And I think with more of a I don't want to say like a globalization because it's it's always been global, but all sports having their Netflix show and social media becoming a bigger part of the sporting world and personality being allowed, I think the Olympics is almost getting more prestige and popularity in a sense of like I don't ascribe to this, but if you're an Olympian, you get letters at the end of your name, so I would be aisha Pratt-Lear, o l y and like you don't get letters to added to your name for being a Tour de France writer, which I, I you probably should like that's that's insane nobody nobody does that in the world, but what I think is happening is there is riders want to do it. Like it is, it is a very, very unique proposition that the slimmest of margin of human being gets the honor of being an Olympian. And no one can take that away from you. And an Olympic medal is, and this is coming from like, you know, I'm a, I'm doing Olympic sport, but it is the greatest honor in all of sport. And I think it's cool to see riders who like yeah they they make a lot more money than track athletes, and they have a really high profile, but wanting to do wanting to do the Paris Olympics in particular makes a lot of sense to me. And I love it
0: I, you, you are onto something with Paris that that must be a major component, yeah, because it's it's like a monument has then just been organically created in the heart of Europe, It's close for them. And I guess we're not talking about people that could win the tour. Like, Wout Van Aert's not going to win the tour right. defense this year. Matthew Vanderpool not going to win it. Right. Being an Olympic gold medalist in those countries in Belgium and the Netherlands, Lights probably a big out. deal.
1: Huge deal. Like it's really interesting. A lot of smaller European countries. If you have an Olympic medal, like you're ostensibly set for life. Yeah.
0: Well, I, yeah, I was in, I was in London just like browsing, browsing the, the channels and they have, it's just like, random like sam queck she was on the olympics she was captain of the olympic gold medal winning field hockey team and she's like a tv personality now like to a level like she's like ryan seacrest of, of britain and like jennifer valenti american won an won an individual gold medal in the olympics i had to look this up actually just right now in tokyo and like i doubt anyone in boulder even knows who she is she showed up to uh Which is like a local gravel race that's really hard. And she raced it on a road bike and won the last time they had it. It's like, yeah, she's an Olympic gold medalist. She's pretty good. But there is just like a dilution in the US, especially in cycling, where you're not gonna be as famous. So maybe that's hard for me to grasp. Mm -hmm. I guess it's cool. I I, maybe this is just an anomaly because Wow and Vanderpoel are such big stars that they can just call that. It's like, yeah, I want to win the Olympics, and that's what I want to put my focus into. I do think it's absurd. <laughs> like I think Vanderpool and Pickock are going to do the mountain bike race and road race, which race. Saga, so I think Peter Sagan was the first person to do this at Rio. And it was, you know, it would kind of be like if Roger Federer was like, well, I'm going to do tennis and table tennis. Like yeah. they are the oh, same, but they're not they're really They're not the same at all. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. I also wonder if Red Bull has something to do with this or just like the idea of non-endemic Cycling sponsors coming to the table of like just more influence at the Olympics is really cool. You know, you'd like think of, I think about a a bunch of different Olympians that are sponsored by Red Bull. You think of Mondo Duplantis, the pole vaulter, the Swedish pole vaulter, who is just like Red Bull guy, Karsten Warholm, the Norwegian 400 meter hurdler. It's like Red Bull's very invested in the Olympics also.
0: Where Red Bull stuff, no, they can't. No, No. But I guess Red Bull figures if they're, they're a so media company. If they're so good it doesn't really matter like if they're wearing our stuff the rest of the time yeah. no one is really thinking what's his name carson warholm <laughs> isn't there like beef with him and like an american hurdler he like
1: there's not beef there's an the incredible ri- rivalry between rye benjamin and carson warholm
0: does he wear shoes is there something with the shoes
1: there's always something with the shoes yeah but puma has a very very fast very very fast 400 meter hurdle spike but his competitor, the competitor brand also has a very fast spike. So it's kind of apples to apples at this point. But yeah, Karsten is, he's been unbeatable.
0: I'm waiting for Nor- Norway is like now invading pro cycling with Uno X, like really good team. Yeah. Small country, like 4 million people.
1: Track Incredible and field. Are they going to be Max. like
0: the best NBA players soon? Like what's going on here, guys? I know. Why are the Norwegians dominating everything?
1: Yeah. yeah. I, I, you look at, there's a very famous, running family the ingebritsons they've had three sons be olympians in the 1500 and the 5k one of them has multiple olympic medals um world championships and they all started skiing at a really young age um i do think that there's incredible endurance talent in norway that's like probably nature and nurture at the same time of like incredibly high natural vo2 maxes and they've been training it since they were little kids
0: yeah yeah it's probably something like you know if you if you can like trace your ancestry to the samoan islands then you're like seven thousand percent more likely to play in the nfl yeah where there's just like nature and nurture but yeah you could be real big strong fast guy but if you didn't grow up in a place that just like was all about football yeah you're probably not going to be that good. So yeah i i am fascinated by because you think swedes would be share that but they don't produce at aerobic levels quite the same way as norwegians but then maybe they're all because like a lot of nhl players are swedish not a ton are norwegians so maybe they're all wasting their time making millions playing in the nhl yeah. a bunch of idiots <laughs> or right. like
1: for i think about this all the time like the jamaican sprinters one of my good friends on team jamaica's hansel parchment who's olympic champion in the 100 meter hurdles 110 high hurdles he's got many other medals but this guy's got to be like i don't know six six at least absolute specimen of an athlete like why isn't he playing in the nba
0: yeah 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 i mean i guess that would be
1: maybe six eight i don't i don't know i'd have to look it up but just like extreme athleticism like your reaction time your Flexibility, your speed, your power, your strength weight ratio to be one ten high hurdler is off the charts. Like he probably could play any professional sport that he wanted to, but he's Jamaican, so he's a Olympic medalist hurdler.
0: (laughs) I guess that's what happened to Tim Duncan. He was from either the Virgin Islands or the Bahamas, and there's pools. He was like a swimmer, so he was just going to be a really tall swimmer. And then the pools got destroyed, and so he had to do something else. So he became like maybe the third best basketball player of all time. Crazy, but yeah, it does show you there's a lot of probably a lot of latent talent out there that's not getting funneled into high paying sports and we just don't know about it i mean imagine i guess steven like steven adams like there's a reality where he just like never plays basketball (laughs) but i feel like we don't talk enough about the adams family oh my gosh Here's a picture of you and his sister valerie adams
1: good friends with val yeah (laughs) Yeah. i was like
0: shocked by the photo
1: (laughs) yeah oh yeah
0: people
1: yeah i'm like a mini person compared to val
0: it's wild. Yeah. And she's not even she's probably like small in her family. She's one of
1: the small Adams s- siblings.
0: It's like the do you know the Lopez twins? Like no. the two NBA <laughs> oh, players. Yeah. It's like we yeah. just don't like they're like, yeah, they're pretty good. It's like these guys are seven feet tall and like so athletic. You know, like if they played baseball, it's all we would talk about yeah. It's like how yeah. big a specimens the Lopez brothers are. And it's like, yeah, they're okay.
1: Circling back to the Olympics, this is the beauty, one of the beauties of the Olympics. It's like you're walking around the Olympic village and it's just a freak show of like every athlete that you have ever seen and they're all so different. I remember I was stretching in the village in Rio and to my left was like the Belgium gymnastics team and they're, you know, I'm 5'4". I'm towering over these women. They're doing the craziest stretching I've ever seen in, in my life. I could never do this. I look to my right, Pau Gasol is in a full lunge doing some sort of like cable Row, he's still taller than me in a full lunge, and you're just looking around at all of these the insane, diverse, incredible he, like freaks of the human species, and it's pretty cool.
0: That, okay, all right, I'm coming around to yeah. it.
1: I'm in the elevator with Rudy Gobert sizing him, sizing him up in Paris or in Tokyo, thinking like, oh, this is pretty cool. I, I saw his his name tag because my I'm coming up to about his name tag height, like mid mid belly. And I text my coach like, hey, is Rudy Gobert good at basketball? I'm in the elevator <laughs> with
0: him. You yeah, it's it's you ask. Polarizing cool. figure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to be like a 90 minute train ride away from the Olympic road race this summer. And I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to go. <laughs> <Come> <laughs> on. The,
1: you're going. You're going. The hassle,
0: the traffic.
1: No, but no, you're are
0: you going to be there early enough for the Olympic road race or are you going to come in later?
1: I don't know. Well, I'm knocking on Spencer's Excuse me, I burped. I'm knocking on Spencer's wood table. I'm shooting my shot, calling my shot that I'm making this Olympic team. And we have been discussing how we'll how we would train going into this thing. I'm sure we'll do some altitude, maybe in San Marit, but probably going to be pretty hot. So we'll probably need to do some heat acclimation. And I don't know where we would do that. So it would be it would be cool to be nearby.
0: Yeah, yeah. That actually you brought that up. I forgot to bring that up during earlier in the episode but that's also part of the calculation of doing like too much altitude training before let's say the tour de france so you're like you're up in san moritz it's got to be the coldest
1: it's so cold (laughs) during the summer. it's ridiculous it makes me angry sometimes 55
0: it's the hottest day we've had this year so you're up there and then you drop down and you're in like baking hot provence or something and like does that outweigh should you have been heat training and i'm like still i still think we have a long way to go on like heat training like how beneficial is that it is should you be doing it
1: it's very beneficial and we've started doing it but there's again technology is really cool like i've got a sauna blanket where i five days a week go in this little very very hot sleeping bag for 40 minutes and you there are all these studies that show like how much sauna exposure that you need to pump up your blood plasma and all whatever your heat shock proteins and all this stuff. I'm not a scientist, but I do know that there are studies that show you exactly how to do it and you can be heat acclimated and altitude trained at the same time.
0: Interesting. Yeah. I mean, and that definitely works. I've, we've debated many times in this podcast if there's like the science is maybe not conclusive on if altitude tents actually help you or not. But obviously, just being hot somewhere will help you. It doesn't matter if you're artificially doing it or not. Yeah. And is it throwing you off the short spread between the Olympics? I'm not an Olympian. I feel like I'm very thrown off by it. I feel like we just had the Olympics. I feel
1: like we just had the Olympics. I really do feel like we just had the Olympics. And it's crazy because there's so much hype in an Olympic year. It really is like no other year. And I feel like we just did this of like here we go, Olympic year, we got to <laughs> do it all, and sponsors, and blah, blah, blah. So yeah, there is a... I didn't do indoor track this year, and a lot of people on my team didn't do indoor track this year. And I, I personally feel a little bit of like, yeah, gird your loins, because this year is going to be big, and yeah. we did just do this in a very weird way in Tokyo. I'm going to also... Say, I know I said I was a normal person earlier, but I did see Rigoberto Urán in the Olympic Village dining hall in Tokyo, and I would like if I saw Lady Gaga, I would be totally normal and like, oh hi, Lady Gaga. But I see like professional cyclists, and I freak out. I I turn into a version of myself that is so uncool. And I was with my training partners, all of whom are like completely gorgeous. They all look like models. And we're you know, eating our gyoza in the Tokyo Olympic Village. And I see Rigo sitting by himself two tables away. I can see him through all of the plexiglass dividers. And I, I was too nervous to say hi. And I was <laughs> telling the girls, I'm like, do you know who this is? And they all think I'm crazy because I like cycling so much. And they're like, I ain't like you guys are the same size. Like, why are you intimidated? Just like go (laughs) over there and say hi, you freak. And I couldn't do it.
0: That's like the meme. It's like someone in a corner at a party, and but he's sitting over there. Like they don't know I have two point five million Instagram followers. Yeah, Yeah. he's like the most. He has the most followers on social media than any other cyclist ever it's which insane. is yeah crazy i mean he must be a rock star in columbia <laughs> That's well really- did you
1: see what was happening this fall where he brought wout yeah and- i forgot about that what was it tour de rigo i was so obsessed with this like why wasn't i in Colombia for this
0: it was like yeah his personal grand fondo and he like made Wout do a transatlantic flight to go to it
1: but did he pay him large sums of money they're like on these backwaters wouts in like the very european jean shorts just so out of He's so out of his own context, just sweating. <laughs> and Rigo is just living his best life. They're making him like samba, bachata. I don't, I don't know what dance they were trying to make him do. I was obsessed with this content. I couldn't I couldn't stop.
0: Well, we'll get you. I, we have taken a ton of your time. But before you leave, I do want to... like, As I approach pro-cyclist retirement age, I never used to think about... I used to just think like, well, you, okay, you're Grant Thomas. You retire and then, and then you're good. But it's actually more complicated than that, because I mean, maybe you haven't made enough money to do nothing. Even if you have, that's, you know, you can't really just sit around and do nothing for the rest of your life. I feel like the trend in cycling is, you know, like I'm just Mitch Docker use him as an example, like good writer, very good personality, like affable guy started a podcast before he retired from cycling, just seamlessly transitioned from pro cyclist to podcast host. And now he's just kind of like professional media personality still has he can still ride a ton so he just crazy rides We all ride from like melbourne to adelaide for the start of the tour done under and he has connections in the peloton that or garrett thomas i guarantee you just the same yeah. thing he's gonna retire and he's gonna go you also like don't realize you think if you're a kid and you're like you're gonna make five million euros a year and pay no taxes You're going to be set for the rest of your life. But like Karen Thomas probably has to make money because you have to live like 45 more years and you have expenses, taxes. They don't tell you about that. Property taxes, (laughs) but yeah, children, (laughs) tuition. So he'll probably just be a professional podcaster and very successful. Like, is that what, what's the norm in running? And then if you, you know, if you don't want to share, you don't have to, but like, what are your personal plans once you stop running?
1: Yeah. It's really interesting, especially it struck me when you said, well, you're not going to do nothing. Yeah. These are people, myself included. I've been a hamster running my butt off on a wheel professionally for the last 12 years. You can't just like sit me in a room with nothing to do after this. I would go crazy. And most professional athletes would go absolutely crazy. Like, These are incredibly driven, goal-oriented, obsessive personalities that like what like what would I even do if I wasn't doing anything? Like I I I can't conceptualize like taking off the running shoes and being like, well, I guess I'll just do nothing. I that being said, I have not made enough money in my career to retire from all life. But in running, the norm is there's there's not a huge norm. A lot of people become coaches, as we talked yeah. about. Running coaching is is big business. A lot of NCAA coaches, a lot of professional coaches, youth coaches. I'm not interested in that. I'm pretty intense. I once received a yellow card or a red card at a track meet. I didn't know you could do something, but I wasn't <laughs> racing at my team's conference my senior year and was yelling so vigorously at one of my teammates that I ever received a color card to like back off. Like I, I think I would get fired from a coaching job in the first week because I, I'm too hype. Um. <laughs> like the state has to come
0: in and yeah. like suspend you as a state employee. We can't yeah. endorse this behavior. Exactly, <laughs> like
1: ma'am, stand down. But yeah, it it is interesting. A lot of people move into like the running industry is big. I I was I assume this happens in cycling too. Like you go work for Specialized or Cannondale yeah. or something like that. That happens a lot of running and running. A lot of people, my husband included retire from running and then work for their the sponsor like their previous sponsor i'm i'm at an interesting place where i'm not sure what i want to do i do a lot of work in athlete advocacy and sports governance with our global governing body world athletics i've really enjoyed that and gotten to work on several different projects like human rights and making the sport bigger safer place more money more fans you know what have you signing off on rule changes and and innovation in sport i find that stuff very interesting um but there aren't a ton of jobs uh flowing out of that either um i the the short answer is i i don't know but maybe it's my ego that thinks that i'm gonna be fine you know i'm i'm like reasonably of reasonable intelligence and you know contrary to what i've said about my cycling fandom like a, a pretty normal likable person so i feel like there's something i can do in the world but things i'm exploring would be yeah like sort of high level business of sport potentially some human rights work or i might just want to totally transition out and just be in some sort of like Incredible rat race, bad for your health inducing line of work because that's <laughs> essentially what I'm doing right now. That just like involves nine hours of sleep. But yeah, not sure. It is, it, it's hard when athletes retire. I watched my husband retire in 2021, but because your whole life and your whole, as much as, as you want to say, like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm more than just a runner, like you really have to be a runner. 24/7. If you're if you want to be successful on the world stage and as a cyclist, you have to be a cyclist 24/7 and you know, you're taking maybe 2 weeks off per year of training. And it it becomes it consumes you. It becomes everything. And to set that down and find a new way to define yourself and find new goals to chase and new things to live for, honestly, like I I freaking live for this stuff. Like I I love the thrill of lining up in a stadium of 40,000 plus people in my underwear to absolutely thrash myself and thrash other people in competition. Like it's, it, what we do is crazy. And, and you're riding in a Peloton at 60 kilometers an hour with, I I was really struck by how loud the Peloton was in Unchained. Again, not a, not an official sponsor here, (laughs) but. uh, Oh,
0: oh, wait, wait. the check is here.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'm now a pundit on Unchained. but. And no, it's like it, the incredible risk and the incredible reward of of athletics is it's a drug man it's like it's it's going to be hard to set it down, and I'm sure for cyclists it's it's the same thing, but you you use the people around you and you you talk it out and you know get a great therapist and ride it out into the sunset <laughs> and figure out something else to do
0: I feel like Kip maybe Kip Taylor's like screaming at his radio, same or wrong on this, but i I have a theory that. It's like, you know, the rat race job, bad for your help. <laughs> I feel like it's oftentimes not as hard as people make it out to be. Like it's, it's hard to get those jobs. Yeah. But a lot of like big corporate jobs, it almost feels like they, you know, you're such you you present so much value as an employee that they like want you to work for a really long time. Mm-hmm. So it's not as, you know, you think like I'm a professional athlete. It's about crushing my coworkers. And it's like, no, nah, like we're all gonna do well and the company's gonna do well. And, you know, like my father-in-law works for a very big company and like they get every federal holiday off like holidays. I'd never even heard yeah. of I'm like, oh, what? <laughs> what's the deal? Maybe we should push kids to go work for big companies because it yeah. seems kind of nice.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, honestly, it does seem kind of nice. Like. Uh, just waking up every day and knowing exactly what the goal is, is something that's very comforting to me and like working way, way, way harder than anyone ever should work. Like that's very appealing to me. I don't know.
0: Yeah. I guess that probably the the big problem I have is like, if I'm not super interested yeah. in a project, I tend to be like lazy or find difficulty and motivation on it. But some people just, it's just like, you know, like I'm a corporate lawyer and I'm going through documents from 200 years ago highlighting like references to magazine size it's like i couldn't do that i could not hold focus on that if i was looking for like tour de france finishing times from 200 there years ago, go. i'm in but so you
1: just got to find that niche yeah i'm
0: just not able to do that but if you can i by all means kids i recommend you go work for the biggest company you can find it's going to be yeah. fabulous and but, get
1: health insurance <laughs> yeah get that health insurance that's what it's about yeah
0: free lunch it, in cycling it's big we were mentioning it like big for You know, major cyclists to be podcasters than like start their own media companies. Is that a thing in running?
1: Not really. I mean, there are some, there are a couple of podcasts now that are like pretty good. A couple of like grassroots media companies that are popping up. One in particular is called Sidious Mag. If you, if anything that I've said in this podcast makes you feel. Remotely interested in running, I I highly recommend signing up for the Sidious Mag weekly newsletter. It's kind of like the Spencer's s- Substack. Like you're getting recaps, you're getting getting a pulse on on track, but just less money, less money in track. I think it's
0: all going to the coaches. <laughs> it's all
1: going to the coaches <laughs> and the hundred meter sprinters. Yeah, yeah. You just you can't really make a living on it. There are you can you can commentate some. But most people in those roles tend to have several side hustles going on.
0: It is a little funny, yeah. It almost feels like all the money in the, I mean, I guess like the IOC kind of is the big profit center in that value chain or the shoe companies. like Yeah. Nike's probably doing pretty well. But yeah, it is odd. You don't never see like, there's like not, no one does like, you know, Emma Coburn, what's her season going to look like? And like actually does like, it's all like let's run user Generated content that yeah, yeah, might yeah. not be very good. Where does Aisha Pratt live now? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's
1: just like toxic message boards.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I don't know. I feel like Puma could just hire you to be like, you're You're just like the roving podcaster. You're just traveling the world, making running content for them, tracking down pro cyclists. I also feel like you could, like Rafa should just hire you to like, ride. you're just out there riding. Like how fast can you get? I want to see. Yeah. You're out there riding around the world.
1: Yeah. To your point of your last podcast, I'm a Rafa believer also. I just bought some cargo bib shorts, like the the cushiest possible model that they have. Yeah. Incredible.
0: Yeah, Truly it is, incredible. It is incredible. I think they take a lot of crap because they're owned by like a Walton, the Walton heirs, right now. And so it's like not a grassroots company anymore, yeah. but you, know, they're... I don't, I don't vividly remember their prices, but I almost feel like their prices have gone down I think they've other stayed the brands same and
1: everything else has gotten yeah. more expensive.
0: It's kind of like North Face. It's like, they have a $300 winter jacket. It's insane. And now like the North Face jacket is yeah. like the budget jacket Yeah, now
1: like Canada Goose exists.
0: <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I have the cargo, I have cargo thermal tights. I never own, I just use like, you know, tights you'd buy at Dick's Sporting Goods and pull them over bib shorts. yeah. yeah. It's like a different experience and I can put my phone in there. I don't have to dig it out of my pocket with my gloves on. Yeah. It's an elevated way to live.
1: It's an, it is truly an elevated way to live.
0: Yeah. And the clubhouse in London is really, really fun. I reckon if you're in Soho in the Soho area, drop in, they have like an entire wall of just like cards you can pull off. And like every, each card is a different ride you can do. Oh, cool. It's like a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I mean, maybe this is just, I just wasn't there long enough. But, you know, in the U.S., it can be a little standoffish. Like, you even, you know, I've, I'm often at the Rafa store here. But it's like, if you're not into cycling, you could feel like, maybe I'm not supposed to go in there. But, like, the London store was just, like, popping. There's, like, random people That's in there, really like, cool. learning about bikes, which was cool.
1: Even though I'm, like, a Twitter informant cycling nerd, I feel like an imposter if I'm sitting in Rafa. I coffee. feel
0: like an imposter in Rafa. And
1: what? How? i believe like <laughs> editing
0: a podcast with Richard Fuga. Like, I'm not supposed to be in here.
1: What? That's insane to me.
0: <laughs> I that, But that's the American cycling scene. I feel like it's just all, it's like, no one feels like an insider. It's trying to make everyone feel like an outsider. Probably because it was so counterculture and like not cool for so long that it like created this persona, you know, it's like it had, it like put this edge on itself out of like a defensive mechanism but it can be pretty off-putting if you're just curious in the sport.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And probably living in Boulder too. Like I, one of my plans in athletics retirement is getting a bike and riding. But as my husband has said, you're a retired professional athlete in one sense, and then you go out to ride and people think that you're going to be like the best and you're going to like crush all these rides and whatever. And, and, He's like, whoa, guys! Like, I'm just trying to have a good time. Like, I <laughs> <Yeah>. like, <laughs> take it easy on me. I'm I'm new here. But that's how I feel. Like, I want I wanted, eventually, join all these group rides. But I hear you guys talk about the bus stop ride, and I'm like, I can't go. I there. would
0: not join the bus stop ride. <laughs> 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 that's, they're not it's good. <laughs> that's yeah. I said
1: so- so like a gentle, like I don't know. Is the the Petunia Mafia is like a two hundred plus person female cycling group in Boulder, like a like that's are good they nice?
0: i feel like they again they take a lot of crap and they're not paying us but rafa like they have really good uh, they have really good not beginner rides but i mean they have beginner rides too but just like it's not crazy you can go on those rides and they're like they're well i guess like maintained and it's, especially they have like women's only rides and stuff like that like that's a really good entry point into group rides i mean the bus stop ride especially before tokyo was nuts because it was like pro mountain bikers all the pro triathletes and like those were some of the fastest group rides i've ever been on oh my god and like very cool but yeah. unless you're like i was not in great shape that summer and i was like barely able to keep up so like unless you're like really really fit it yeah. can just be overwhelming
1: yeah well
0: we'll let you go aisha i've kept, I've kept you here forever thanks the, i have to
1: uh, go do my uh my double
0: i've got i've got a to my double two, AK, my single, <laughs> Getting on Zwift. <laughs> well, thank you so much. And Thanks for having me. We'll have you back on the summer before the Olympics to speculate on ha- what class of travel everyone is traveling to the oh, Olympics yeah. And
1: we didn't really get into my predictions. We didn't get in, into my season predictions, into my Grand Tour predictions. I have a lot of thoughts. And so uh, we'll follow up next time.
0: Before you go, you got to list them off. So here, I'm going to... Monuments. Milana San Remo, Flanders, Roubaix. Who wins that? And then the Grand Tours.
1: Mads Pedersen. San Ramo. San Ramo. What's what, the second one? Flanders. Flanders. Wow. He has to win it.
0: He does have to win. And then Roubaix?
1: I really don't know. I really don't know. I just
0: feel in wow.
1: Well, yeah.
0: He's got to do it. He, he needs both. Three's he needs a bum. Both.
1: And then he's doing E3. What's that one called? E3 stacks nope. or something or other?
0: Yeah. I mean, I love Wout. Like one of my favorite writers. He'll probably win E3 and then not win Flanders and Roubaix. That would
1: be. He has to win Flanders. He does have to win. Yeah.
0: Min, anyway, sorry. I don't. I don't think Pagaccheri is doing it. No. Yeah, which is good for Wout. Yeah. And then who wins Zero Tour of Welta?
1: Who? Okay. Uh, just because I love him, Wouts girl. I don't think he's going to win. But I'm just going to speculate that, that I think the fun. tour is going to be incredible. I think I could see it playing out in a, in a couple of ways. I think I really want to see Primos do incredibly well i just worry that he's not going to be able to stay on his bike without the firepower of having a very protective as many very protective teammates i just feel like he crashes a lot <sighs> i think what we're see is stay with the more focused race schedule and Jonas just absolutely annihilate each other and then it's a distant third um probably for primos
0: do you think Tade beats Primos even having done the Giro? Yes. I guess that's
1: possible. Or do you think Primos is just has a festering hatred of everyone from what happened at the Vuelta and he is second?
0: Well, probably the the hard truth is Primos just isn't good enough. Like if you go back and watch that Vuelta, like Jonas was better than him and that was his whole focus on the season. So he's probably not good enough. But I'm like, if you watch the Super Bowl, there was that spoiler alert. There was that punt that like went off the Niners guy's foot mm-hmm. and the Chiefs got it. I kind of wonder if we're heading towards that type of tour where it's like Tade's fatigued. Jonas doesn't have wow, Things don't go as planned and like the C's part and like Jonas yeah. gets to win it.
1: That could be. I I do. We talked about this at length that I think that having wow, not having Wout at the tour is is going to hurt more than they think. I mean, the guy has won the tour for Jonas in the past, like the amount of times that he's put on his Superman cape and saved the day for Jonas, I think is going a little bit too underrated.
0: I agree too. And I find it, I don't know. I don't, we don't know what happened. I find it a little strange that that whole situation, like him not being there says it's for the Olympics, but if you go back, no one's actually won the Olympics without racing the tour. So what's going on there? And then Volta. I guess it's ridiculous to even speculate because we don't know who's starting. Yeah, we don't know who's starting. Go ahead and pencil in Primo's. It's happening. Yeah. He's oh, yeah. Yeah.
1: I think I think what will happen is that people are just so fried and Primo's crashes out of the tour and wins the belta.
0: And then, and then Olympics. Wow. For the win. That would be cool.
1: That would be so cool. I mean. It's so I mean, hard though. But Matthew, Matthew Vanderpool is doing both disciplines and he is too fit right now. I'm just going to call it now. It's too fit. He's
0: very fit right now. Too fit. I mean, the multiple disciplines is crazy too. Apparently Tom Pickcock is doing the tour, the Olympic mountain bike and the Olympic road race, which is hilarious. I, I tend to think that it won't be, it won't be Wout, It won't be Vanderpool. It won't be Tadde. It's going to, it's like going to be some, someone like Mads Pedersen will win the yeah. Olympics because those guys will be so focused on, but I guess we won't know until it happens. Yeah. Well, thank you so much and we'll have you back on before the tour so you can, you can really dive into your theories about what's going to happen.
1: Thank you. I'll be doing some research until then.
0: All right. Thanks Aisha. Thanks.